it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hello, good morning everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which of course means uh, coming up in about an hour, we'll have our two-hour roundtable known as Armchair Politics. And we have Jan Worth Nelson from, she's the um, uh, consulting editor for East Village Magazine. She'll be joining our roundtable regulars, uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left, and Longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right for commentary and analysis about uh, all of the headlines from the worlds of politics and current events. But this first hour, this is a special Wednesday because it's the first Wednesday of the month, and that means we're going to talk and catch up a little bit about the economy. I've got. 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. Joining me now from the University of Michigan Flint, uh, economist Chris Douglas for our uh, first of the month, uh, first Wednesday of the month catch-up on uh, economics and and other economic-related matters. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Tom. Great to be here, and thanks for that great introduction. (laughs) You like having a theme song, don't you? Oh, yeah. That's the only theme song I have. <laughs> it is kind of fun. Um, but but let's talk about uh, what's going on with uh, with the economy. Now, the um, uh, minutes are out from, from uh, uh, the Fed's March meeting, and uh, according to some analyses of those uh, minutes, a lot of time was spent focusing on uh, differences of opinion on 
how and when to raise interest rates to address inflation? Yeah, so inflation starting started becoming a problem over a year ago at this point. <clears throat> and we were first told by the Fed and others that, well, this was just due to base effects, which means whenever there's a massive economic slowdown like we saw in March and April 2020, prices fall. And then once the slowdown ends and the economy recovers, you'd expect prices to rapidly rise to catch up where they would have been had the slowdown slowed down not occurred. So that looks like a high rate of inflation for those two months when prices catch up. But people said at the time, well, don't worry about it. This is just base effects. You know, once prices catch up, inflation will go back to the 2% we're used to. Well, that didn't happen. And then we were told, well, inflation is transitory, meaning, well, it's maybe just a couple of months thing. Consumers are um, kind of restless after being cooped up in their homes for two to three months. So they're out there spending lots of money taking trips they couldn't take. You know, that's causing prices to rapidly rise. But once that subsides, prices will start to rise again at 2% like we're used to. And here we are a year and a half or more later, and inflation has just accelerated. You know, people were yeah, complaining about it? inflation when it was 5%. Now it's 8%. Is, oh, is it that high? The last number I saw was like 65 or something for February. Um, yeah, March, I think, was 7.9%. I'm just rounding up to 8 Oh, okay. As economists, we like to round. Um, well, radio hosts like to do that, too. Um, but but let's talk about that. Uh, you know, it's it's up around 8% in, in normal uh, expectation would be around 2 2.5%. Yeah, so if you go back to 1983, after Paul Volcker broke the back of the 1970s inflation, as they say, um, inflation averaged about 2 2.5% year to year. So that's just what we got accustomed to. Um, economists call that a nominal anchor, meaning people's inflation expectations were anchored around 2%. So I think that's one reason why um, maybe some people had a hard time believing that inflation could go higher and stay higher. Because people are saying, well, for the last 25, 30 years, inflation has been 2%. Well, it can't go higher than 2%, right? Well, it turns out it can. Um, now the question is, well, now that inflation is 8%, I would guess next month it's going to be higher. Well, how do we bring inflation back down to the, to the 2% that we all know and love before we suffer some bad consequences of inflation being permanently higher? And I think that's kind of the needle the Federal Reserve is trying to thread um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that they could do so. How much is the um, uh, are the sanctions against Russia and and the um, oh the the not using Russian oil impacting the rate of inflation? Because it's it's so, driven oil prices up and gas prices are extremely high. Is that impacting inflation? Uh, yeah, there is an impact. Um, so gasoline around Christmas time was about seventy. I'm sorry, oil around Christmas time was about seventy five dollars a barrel. Now it's closer to a hundred dollars a barrel, so that's a twenty five dollar per barrel increase. Rule of thumb is that every ten dollar price increase in oil increases gasoline prices by a quarter. So if you're talking about 
oil increasing by $25, you know, that's increasing gas prices by about, call it 60 cents, just for a nice round number. And that's basically what we've seen um, gasoline prices do between Christmas and now. So certainly that's impacting inflation. It's probably adding um, two to three point, um, I would say 0.2 to 0.3% um, to the inflation rate. You know, maybe it takes inflation maybe from 7% to maybe 7.2%, 7.3%, something like that. Um, simply because oil and gasoline are used as inputs to so many products, um, not just not just fuel, but all sorts of synthetic materials that people use. So higher prices for oil and gasoline certainly increase inflation, but it's important to note that even before the Ukrainian war, um, inflation was already running hot, is already running at about 7%. So you can't really blame the Russia-Ukrainian situation for why inflation is high, uh, because it did it start low and then go high? It was already high and then just ticked up a couple of notches higher. And how is uh, what's happening in Ukraine and the, the invasion by Russia and subsequent sanctions against Russia impacting our supply chain? So it's not great uh, because Russia and Ukraine produce a lot of raw materials that are used to produce final goods. We don't really think about that because when you look at the final good, it says made in. It'll be like made in China, made in Vietnam or whatever. That just means where the final good was assembled. You don't see where the raw materials for that good came from. So Russia exports lots of crude oil. As we know, they're something like the world's second largest crude oil producer. Uh, but Russia also exports lots of raw materials um, <laughs> like lithium for car batteries. Ukraine produces something like half of all the neon, commercial-grade neon, used for semiconductor manufacturing. Um, just various um, other precious metals um, used to uh, produce things like batteries are mined in, in Russia as well as the Ukraine. So I think it's hard for consumers to kind of think about, well, how is this war going to impact consumer goods when you don't really think about, well, would I buy this new Tesla? You know, where did the material for the car battery come from? Well, it came from Russia. Well, that might be two or three months down the road when you want to go buy, say, a, a new car or, or something else. You know, that product might not be available, and then you have to trace back the reason for why that's the case, and it, it turns out that um, the war has disrupted the, the supply chains to those vital materials. You know, it's interesting you said a lot of the labels will say made in. China, made in USA, etc. And what they should say is assembled in. Right. And and maybe that would help us think about these other things that go into making these things. And and I had to snicker a little bit, Chris, because it, it reminded me of when George W. Bush was president and was concerned about manufacturing numbers. So in order to beef the numbers up a little bit, no pun intended, he um, wanted to include fast food restaurants because they assemble sandwiches. Right. Yeah, I remember that. That was, in, I think, like the 2005 economic report of the president sometime around there. I mean, it's kind of a silly example, um, but I think it gets to a point in a way that it's hard to draw the line between what's manufacturing, what's not manufacturing. But I think as consumers, we really care about 
well, is the good that we need going to be on the shelf? Uh, there's been all these disruptions due to COVID. We're always hoping, well, next month down the road, you know, things are going to get back to normal. And I think we see that with the auto industry where, you know, starting basically early last year, um, semiconductors become in short supply. So we're always told, well, in a year, semiconductor, the semiconductor shortage will be over. And then that always gets pushed forward a year. So it's a year, then a year, then a year, uh, which just kind of shows that things aren't, aren't really going back to normal um, because of COVID, because of the Ukrainian war, and who knows what's going to come next. So I think consumers are really fatigued out there because you can't buy a new car if you want to, or if you have to buy a new car, you're going to pay through the nose. You know, same if you want to buy a house, you're going to pay through the nose. And it's just the light is never at the end of the tunnel. It's kind of like um, Charlie Brown to the football. You know, every time we get to the time period where we are told by the so-called experts that things are going to get back to normal, you know, the football is pulled and then it's moved, you know, that much farther down the field. So here we are, we're over two years past the start of the pandemic, and really things aren't any more normal than they were back then. It reminds me of the of the farmer that was asked what his best year was, and he said next year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. And so whatever consumers say, you know, when our house price is going to be back to normal, when our car price is going to be back to normal, when can I go to the grocery store and the thing I want on the shelf is not going to be empty? Yeah, the answer is always next year. I think we've literally seen that with, like, the semiconductor shortage. It's 2023, the 2024, now it's, like, 2025. And and who knows what it's going to be uh, resolved. Because when you look at the global supply chain, there's not a lot of redundancy built in the global supply chain because redundancy is just a, another way for saying extra cost. So if you want to operationalize for efficiency, you, you eliminate all that redundancy from the system. So when the system works, it's very low cost. But when the system breaks, we don't really have a fallback option. There's no plan B. So semiconductors are predominantly manufactured in Taiwan. Um, as your listeners know, that is always a geopolitical hotspot. There's always worry that China will attack or try to invade Taiwan and take it back. You know, if that happens, I don't even know when the semiconductor shortage would be resolved then. But then, like we were talking about earlier, um, Commercial-grade neon, well, that's manufactured in Ukraine. Well, that's a problem. You know, lithium, cobalt, palladium, all those things used for car batteries. They're not all mined in Russia, but you're talking 30 40 50% of the world's supply is. So if that goes offline, either due to the war or due to sanctions, that's a problem. Um, we've talked about Russian oil. So the world economy can't afford to have these supply chain disruptions, and the longer they persist, um, the longer it's going to take for things to go back to what they were in 2019. Chris, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Oh, absolutely. Great. My guest is uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. We're going to take a uh, short break and let our broadcast partners at WFOVLP 92.1 FM Flint Squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner Program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about the economy with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. And he joins me by phone. Hi, Chris. Welcome back. Hey, Tom. Great to be here. Uh, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about supply chain stuff, but I did notice in the uh, in the Wall Street Journal that the U.S. trade deficit narrowed slightly in February. What does that really mean for the U.S. economy, and why is it important to watch that number? I don't think the trade deficit by itself means a ton because the number fluctuates month to month. Um, kind of minor fluctuations. I mean, you're talking about a trade deficit that's about a trillion dollars annually. So, you know, a couple billion dollars here and there, you know, that's basically a rounding error when you're talking about a trillion dollars. So I think people are sensitive to the trade deficit because it signifies that the United States imports lots of goods, perhaps that's displaced um, domestic manufacturing. Certainly people are sensitive to that To that in Flint where you go back to the 1960s, the big three auto companies controlled about 90% of the U.S. auto market. And now that's down to under 50%. So imports have displaced a lot of domestic production. And you know, people kind of look at the trade deficit and say, well, there's where my job went. If you ask where the trade deficit is coming from, um, largely it's coming from the U.S. budget deficit, the federal budget deficit, because the U.S. government you know, spends a lot more than what it brings in in the form of taxes, so it has to borrow the difference. Well, where does it borrow the difference from? Often it's from foreign countries, which means that foreign countries have to have dollars to lend to the U.S. government. Well, where do they get the dollars from? Well, from selling American goods and services. So that's called the twin deficits argument. So so long as the federal budget deficit remains massive, which it has been for the last, basically my entire life, I'm 43, I wouldn't expect the trade deficit to go away anytime soon. Well, one thing that I saw just just recently, and, and I, I really kind of noticed it sort of parenthetically, but the more I thought about it later, um, the more concerned I became about it, was the notion that um, that the United States dollar is losing its prominence as the standard currency around the world. Yeah, I've seen that too. I don't know what uh, that means, our- Chris, and and how big a deal is that that you know that that US dollars are the preferred currency for international trading. I'm not sure how big of a deal that is either. You read people a lot of lives, you seem to think it's a really big deal, and it's, it's hard to know how big of a deal it is because we've never lived in a world where the U.S. dollar isn't the predominant world currency. Um, sometimes people talk about the petrodollar, which means that oil is priced in dollars, like Saudi Arabia, when they sell oil, they accept payment in dollars. So I think what that means is, is that there's always this worldwide demand for dollars, which means that the dollar will hold value for that reason. Kind of like if the dollar is backed by gold, that'll increase the demand for dollars because you could always exchange dollars for gold. Well, if you could always exchange dollars for a barrel of oil, that's going to give the dollar some value. 
which gives the federal government and the Federal Reserve some leeway to inflate the dollar without causing broader price inflation. So if you print the dollars, all else equal, that should cause prices to rise. But if there's always this demand for dollars because it's still kind of the worldwide currency, well, that'll give you some leeway to print some dollars and not cause as high of inflation as you would otherwise get. So why is the dollar losing its um, global um, dominance for currency? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, the rate of inflation is really high right now, 8%, which means if you hold a dollar, it's losing 8% of its purchasing power every single year. You know, that's a problem. I think in the show before, we've talked about something called the rule of 70, where if you take 70 divided by the growth rate of that something, that's how long it takes that something to double in value approximately. So if you do 70 divided by 8, what that says is, well, roughly every 12 years or so, prices are doubling, which means after 12 years with 8% inflation, your dollar turns into 50 cents. Another 12 years after that, your 50 cents turns into 25 cents. So if you're selling a barrel of oil, you might not be willing to accept payment as something that's losing its value that rapidly. I mean, you wouldn't buy a stock where the stock is falling in price by 8% every single year. But with 8% inflation, that's what you're doing when you hold dollars. So I think that's one reason. And I think another reason is the sanctions that have been imposed against Russia has made people kind of skittish about holding dollars in the sense that, you know, people don't hold physical dollars. They hold electronic dollars. They're just bank deposits. Well, what the sanctions have showed is that if you run afoul with the federal government, you know, they might just seize your bank deposits, freeze your assets. So people might be saying, well, I don't want to hold an asset like dollars where at the whim of the United States government, you know, they can just take all those dollars away from me and freeze those assets. You know, I want to hold a different currency that is both not losing its value and where the issuing country won't arbitrarily without any due process say, well, thanks for all these dollars, they're mine now. So the dollar, I think, is both losing its value and it's losing its, its safe haven status. I think the long-term consequences of that are, 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 are unknown. I think the most likely consequences, well, the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve loses some ability to create dollars without causing broader price inflation to the U.S. economy. You know, we've talked a, a lot about oil today, and, and I want to talk about it a little bit more um, because it's been in the news a lot, largely because of the sanctions against Russia, up to and including uh, this past week, I think it was, uh, that President uh, Biden announced he was releasing um, some oil from the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I think that's what they call it, the SPR. Um how big a relief is that for American consumers? And isn't the SPR made for more of an emergency than prices going up? So the answer to that latter question is yes. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is supposed to be for like World War III. If like the world, world oil supply just completely collapses, um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has about 600 million barrels of oil in it. So presumably that can be used to create things like diesel fuel for tanks, jet fuel for fighter jets, and so forth. So that's what it's really intended for. It's not really intended to buffer rising prices. But whenever gasoline prices rise, 
I'll well, it, it grew out of that. an oil embargo from what around 1973, I think, and we w- there was a period of time where we couldn't get oil, and uh, it, in order to not have that happen again, the SPR was created. It, it, am I remembering that right? I think the time frame is right, but I think it was a national security concern in that. Well, if the Middle Eastern countries ever cut off the oil supply, you know that could cripple the U.S. military if there's ever a, a global conflict. So we better have some in the hopper just in case that happens, so we can get our planes off the ground or our, our tanks on the battlefield. But I, I think, think that was the main motive. But I think there wasn't an oil embargo that sort of trigger, triggered those conversations and those concerns. Uh, yeah, I do think it was the. You're right. I think it was the oil embargo that made made policymakers aware. Well, maybe the, the the U.S. supply of oil isn't as stable as we thought it was. Because if you go back before the embargo, I mean, you're talking about like even World War II. I think the United States produced most of, if not all, of the oil it consumed. You know, oil fields that are like Texas, um, we're still pumping at full capacity. Um, and now oil fields in Texas are producing what they produced back then because oil is a finite resource. But it's, it, it was just to be a buffer in case of a global disruption in the supply of oil. Uh, but it's not really intended to offset price increases for consumers uh, simply because there's not enough oil in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to have a meaningful impact on prices. So there's about 600 million barrels of oil in the reserve, which sounds like a lot, 600 million barrels, but that's only about one month's worth of oil consumption in the United States, where uh, the United States consumes about 20 million barrels of oil a day. So if you look at what one million barrels released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve does, is that on the day this was announced, it caused the price of oil to fall slightly from about $107 per barrel to about $110 or $100 per barrel. So if you talk about what savings that will be for the consumer at the pump, you're talking about a $0.17 cent savings, which is not nothing, but it's not going to come anywhere near offsetting the 60 to 70% price increase that consumers have seen since the war began. But I think politicians release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve simply because it's something to do, right? They always face pushback from consumers when gasoline prices rise. Gasoline's a necessity. There's not a lot of substitutes, so consumers are stuck paying those higher prices and cutting back in other areas of their budget, which no one likes to do. So this is a way for politicians to tell consumers, hey, we're doing something to offset um, higher gasoline prices, even if the impact is, is very marginal. How are we doing with uh, with jobs in the U.S.? I think I read somewhere that um, March added 431,000 jobs. You know, when we see a headline like that, what does that really mean, Chris? So what that means is, is that there are about 400,000 more jobs in the economy in March compared to February. So... You know, month to month, lots of people get jobs, lots of people lose jobs. So you know, it's month to month, month, it's not year to year. Correct. So it just says, well, between March, between February and March, 
total employment in the U.S. increased by about 400,000. So if you look at where those jobs are coming from, they're coming from really pandemic sectors or sectors that were, were hit hard during the pandemic, especially leisure and hospitality, uh, which is hotels, restaurants, and so forth. Um, a lot of job losses in, the, in those sectors as restaurants were ordered closed and people couldn't travel. And employment in those sectors was very slow to come back. And I don't think it's well understood why. I can always speculate. Um, I think working in leisure hospitality is it's unpleasant in normal times. And I think during COVID, it was even more unpleasant. You have to wear a mask. You have to make sure your customers are wearing masks. If a customer refuses to wear a mask, you have to, like, do something about it. We've all seen videos of people freaking out on airplanes where the flight attendant says, please put your mask on. What's well, not the flight attendant's fault that the flight attendant has to say that, like the the federal government telling the flight attendant to tell these people. So people in leisure and hospitality are forced to be basically police officers during the pandemic. And, you know, no one likes to do that unless perhaps you're a police officer. And then also I think um, pandemic relief has given, had given people a nest egg um, to kind of ride out the pandemic and maybe return to work more slowly. But I think what you're seeing is cases are down. I think people are burning through their pandemic relief that they've gotten. So they're kind of in a position where they have to go back to work. And I think that's why you're seeing um, jobs at leisure and hospitality and retail trade really lead the way for those 400,000 new jobs that were created between February and March. Um, and I think you're starting to see perhaps um, labor shortages start to mitigate as a result. Um, I haven't looked at total job openings of the U.S. economy lately, but just driving around, it seems like there are fewer help wanted sites now compared to what we saw maybe just a few months ago. Well, and and wages, uh, or wage gains rather, have been showing some signs of, uh, of decline. Is We've been seeing wages really grow in the wake of, of the pandemic shutdowns. And I, I'm just wondering, is that wage gains taking a breath? Or um, as the, the fury to raise wages uh, subsided? So if there are 400,000 more people working... Um, that increase in labor supply is going to have a dampening effect in terms of how fast wages are rising. But you're right, if wages are rising more slowly, you know, that's a problem for the typical worker because of inflation. So if there's 8% inflation, well, you needed 8% raise that year just for your purchasing power to break even. Well, there's not a lot of jobs out there who are seeing wages rise by 8%. Um, I certainly did not get an 8% raise last year, and I won't get one this year. And I would guess that the vast majority of workers are in that boat. So what that means is your standard of living is going to take a big hit. So I think that's kind of a double whammy for workers in that, well, rising prices might be a reason why workers are going back to work where they're seeing gasoline go from like three twenty-five a gallon to $4 a gallon. But it's not just the price of gas that's going up, it's the price of everything that's going up. So it's like, well, I got to go back to work to earn some money to pay these higher prices. But if everyone does that, well, that causes employers not to raise wages as fast as they're raising them by, which causes workers to fall that much farther behind. And I think that's a real reason why inflation is just such a problem for workers is that there's really nothing you can do to avoid it. 
you you're just stuck paying those higher prices right there's no real hedge against higher inflation what about higher energy costs um or prices rather not costs but higher energy prices how does that impact what's happening with the economy and or uh, climate change? So it's hard to know about climate change. I suppose if higher energy prices cause people to use less energy and drive fewer miles, well, that would have an offsetting effect on CO2 emissions and perhaps mitigate climate change somewhat. But I don't know if there's a lot of people out there who say, well, that's you know, that's how we want to address climate change is to just knock everyone's standard of living down by several decades when they can't heat their home or can't drive to work. So, you know, there might be something to that, but in terms of higher energy prices uh, and the effect it has on the economy, it's really a detrimental effect because if you go back and look at all the recessions after World War II, the most common cause of a recession is a sudden spike in the price of energy, in particular, the a spike in the price of oil and gasoline. So we talked earlier, we're talking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, about the oil embargo. You know, that's 1973. Well, there's a massive recession, 73 to 75, uh, that coincides with the price of oil tripling during that time period. You know, fast forward to 1980, price of oil triples basically again, and that's due to the Iranian Revolution. There's a recession then. 1990, price of oil doubles because of Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. You know, there is a recession then. That cost George, that cost George H.W. Bush re-election. You know, fast forward to the Great Recession a dozen years ago. Um, the price of energy spiked to $150 a barrel for oil. No one really blames the Great Recession on the price of oil spiking, but it certainly didn't help. But even if you look at 2001, no one really blames energy for that recession. But if you look at what's happening to oil prices between 1990 to 2001, substantial run-up in the price of oil. So the most common cause of recession is a spike in energy prices. So we've seen energy prices spike um, due to the Ukrainian war. And you're starting to see people out there forecast that a recession is down the road. I think Deutsche Bank just came out and forecasted a recession within the next six months for the U.S. economy. And that becomes a very dicey proposition because you have to ask the question, is the U.S. economy healthy enough to ride out an energy-induced recession? You know, just two years after COVID, and COVID was just 12 years after the Great Recession, which was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Inflation is already really high. The federal budget deficit is already really big. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of strength out there in the U.S. economy to get through a 1973-style recession if that comes down the road within the next six months to a year. Well, I I, I don't think it's just abroad that uh, recession is being talked about or concerns about um, recession are, are being raised. Um Jamie Dimon uh, from J.P. Morgan thinks that uh, there are big risks looming for the U.S. economy, and I, I have to think that that includes uh, uh, forecasting uh, a possible recession. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And another thing that we saw this past week is that the yield curve inverted. 
the yield curve says, well, what's the difference between a long-term interest rate and a short-term interest rate? Uh, for instance, the 10-year Treasury interest rate versus the two-year Treasury interest rate. So usually the 10-year Treasury interest rate is higher than the two-year Treasury interest rate because when you buy a two-year Treasury bond, you're getting your money back sooner from the government. There's less risk associated with getting your money back sooner. So consequently, the interest rate is lower compared to if you loan the government money for 10 years. There's more risk associated with loaning the government money for 10 years, hence the 10-year Treasury interest rate is usually higher. But when the yield curve becomes inverted, the 10-year Treasury interest rate becomes lower than the two-year Treasury interest rate. That usually signals a recession. In fact, I think every time the yield curve has been inverted, there's been a recession. It takes longer than a day of the yield curve being inverted to signal a recession. I think the yield curve has to be inverted for like a month or so, something like that. But the reason why the inverted yield curve might signal a recession is that well, people who buy treasuries become real skittish about the short-term prospects of the U.S. of the U.S. economy, so they want to lock in their money long-term. So they shift from buying short-term treasuries to long-term treasuries. That causes the, causes the interest rate on long-term treasuries to fall, the interest rate on short-term treasuries to rise, and thus the yield curve becomes inverted, and then signals a possible recession. So if we see the yield curve become inverted and stay inverted for an extended period of time. You know, that is a real bad sign on top of spiking oil prices. I wouldn't say a recession is imminent. I mean, there haven't been a ton of recessions since World War II. We're talking maybe <laughs> about the, 10 recessions or so, so not a lot of data points, but it would be very worrying. The clouds are forming. Um, yep. Chris, we're almost out of time, but I, I do want to ask you, what should we be watching for our conversation next month? Um, just the same things we've been watching for the last two years, plus the Russian-Ukrainian war. Um, you know, what happens on that front? Hopefully there's peace within the next month for humanitarian reasons, of course, but that would certainly go a long way to stabilizing the global economy. Look at the rate of inflation. Inflation numbers will be out by the time we talk next month. Hopefully they go down. My money would bet that they're going up. Jobs, um, the jobs report, first Friday of every month, um, that'll be out when we talk next month. So just the usual economic indicators, what's happening with oil prices, what's happening with jobs, inflation, geopolitical conflict. There'll be lots to talk about next month. Well, Chris, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and uh, we'll talk again next month. Sounds great, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Take care. You too. That was economist uh, Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint, and he joins us uh, the first Wednesday of every month leading into Armchair Politics, which is coming up at the top of the hour. I've got... 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash.
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, Mock Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. George Parr, you are an investment banker. I am, yes. Yes. And as such, you have your fingers right on the pulse of the financial market. Yeah, very much so, yes. And uh, during the summer, there's been uh, a great deal of turbulence and volatility, volatility, volatility in, in the, the market, yes. yes. Tremendous, yes, tremendous. Yes, yes. and uh, wh- what has caused that? Well, uh, you have to remember two things about the market. One is that they are made up of very sharp and sophisticated people mm. who, uh, um, these are the greatest brains in the world. And the second thing you have to remember is that the financial markets, uh, to use the common phrase, are driven by sentiment. Uh, What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, things, let's say, are just going along as normal in the market. And then, suddenly, out of the blue, one of these very sharp and sophisticated people says, My God, something awful is going to happen! We lost everything. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, uh, shall I jump out of the window? Shall I jump out of the window? Exactly. Let's all jump out of the window. We, oh, we, sell! We've lost a sell, 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 sell. sell. Yes, precisely. Yes, precisely. <laughs> and then a few days later, this same uh, sophisticated person says, you know, I think things are going rather well. And everybody says, yes, I, I agree with you. you know, I think we're rich. We're rich. Yeah. We're rich. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye, bye. Yes. And that, that is, that's what we call market sentiment. Uh, but, uh, well, yes, uh, surely we are exaggerating just a bit, aren't well, we? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, in August, in the middle of August this year, when the market absolutely plunged in, in London, the, uh, a well-known city firm, uh, State Street Global Markets, mm-hmm. uh, issued a statement in which it said, and I quote, Market participants don't know whether to buy on the rumour and sell on the news. Do the opposite, do both, or do neither, depending on which way the wind is blowing, unquote. (laughs) Yes, and this is the kind of rigorous analysis Analysis, that companies (laughs) will pay huge salaries for. Yes, exactly. And a, a few days later, when the markets have gone up a little bit, the senior equities advisor on ABM, Ambrose Morgan, said, and I quote, we're back to happy days again. <laughs> well, no price is too high for that, uh, no. for that kind uh, of and mature and wisdom. Certainly is it? <laughs> <laughs> this sort of people are, are paid millions of pounds in bonuses. Yes, of course. Uh, during this summer, there have been actual causes behind the volatility in the markets, yes, haven't there? I yes. mean, specifically and especially in America, uh, granting vast numbers of mortgages uh, to people who can't afford them yes. on properties which are diminishing in value. Yes, these are the so-called subprime uh, situation, yes, the subprime, subprime market. Yes. How, how does that work, in fact? Well, imagine, uh, if you can, uh, say, <coughs> an unemployed black man sitting on a crumbling porch somewhere in Alabama in his string vest, and mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a chap comes along and said, would you like to buy this house before it falls down? And um, why do you let me lend you the money? And is this chap who says this, is he a banker? Oh, no, no, no. He's a mortgage salesman. His income depends entirely on the number of mortgages that he can arrange. So his judgment to arrange mortgages is completely objective? Completely objective, yes. Absolutely. (laughs) And uh, and what happens next? Well, then this debt, this mortgage, this debt is is, is taken, uh, bought by a bank and 
packaged together mm-hmm. on Wall Street with a lot of other uh, similar debts. Without going into much detail about what is actually... Without going into any detail, no, it's far too boring. <laughs> and so this is, this is put into a package of debt, and so and then it's moved on to Wall Street, and this, this is it's extraordinary what happens then, that mm-hmm. somehow this package of dodgy debts stops being a package of dodgy debts and starts being what we call a structured investment vehicle. <laughs> and uh, SIV? And SIV, exactly, yes. Yes, I see. And then someone like you comes along and, 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 and buys it. I, I buy it, yes. And uh, yes. then I will ring up, I don't know, somebody in Tokyo and say, look, I've got this package, do you want to buy it? Mm-hmm. And they say, what's in it? And I say, I haven't got the faintest idea. <laughs> and they say, how much do you want for it? And I say, a hundred million dollars. And then, then they say, fine, that's it. And that's the, that's the market. <laughs> and presumably, this package, I mean, that kind of thing can happen several times oh, to the could, same yes, could, uh, possibly, package. Possibly, yes. and, uh, and every time it does, of course, um, then you, or someone like you, will get a fee and a markup. And, and a profit, and, yes. And, yes. And, yes. And, and so well, if I expect us to do it for nothing, it's hard work being <laughs> <laughs> In view of the fact that, that in these packages there's a lot of dodgy debt, mm. what is it about it that attracts the, the financial you know, risk-takers? Yes, well, because um, these, for these hedge funds, as they're called, which specialize in these debts, um, they all have very good names. You mean they're responsible <laughs> companies? No, no, I don't know. It's nothing to do with their reputation. They have actually very, very good names. The, the names they think up of them are very good. I'll give you an example. <laughs> there, there, there's a, a very well-known American Wall Street firm called Bear Stearns mm-hmm. who have two of these hedge funds which specialize in these, these mortgage debts. And uh, they lost so much money, well, lost so much of its value, that Bear Stearns announced that they would have to put in $3.2 billion dollars into one of the funds to try and keep it afloat. $3.2 billion? $3.2 billion, yes, yes. And even then they said the investors couldn't get any money out of it and they were going to let the other fund go. But one of these funds was called the High Grade Structured Credit Strategies Fund and the other was called the High Grade Structured Credit Enhanced Leverage Fund. <laughs> well, that sounds very good. But that's it? good, isn't it? it? Yeah. <laughs> This is the the magic of the market. What started off as lending a few thousand dollars to an unemployed black man in a string vest has become a high-grade structured credit enhanced leverage fund. (laughs) I like the sound of it. It it is good. It sounds very trustworthy. I mean, it's got good words in it. It's got words like high. High is good. High is good. (laughs) Better than low, anyway, isn't it? It is, yes. Absolutely. And and structured is another good word. Very good. Enhanced. I love enhanced. Enhanced is very good. I mean, I'd buy anything. If it said enhanced, absolutely. Yes, Yes. it might have been different if it said the unemployed black man in the string vest fund. But but, but, (laughs) yes, because then uh, alarm bells might start (laughs) to ring. But uh, despite these very plausible names, surely the reality is that the people that lent all this money have been incredibly stupid. Oh no. No, no, the reality is that what was stupid is that at some point somebody asked how much money these houses were actually worth. That's I mean, stupid. if they hadn't bothered to ask that question, then everything would have gone on as perfectly normal, but they, unfortunately they did. I see, but now, you see, people are saying the crisis is likely to turn into a financial meltdown. I mean, can that be avoided? It can be avoided, provided that governments and central banks give us, the financial speculators, back the money that we've lost. 
But isn't that rewarding greed and stupidity? No, no. <laughs> it's rewarding what the Prime Minister Gordon Brown called the ingenuity of the markets. That is the... <laughs> See, and, 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 and we, don't want, we don't want this money to spend on ourselves. We want this money just to go into the market so that we can carry on borrowing and lending money as if nothing had happened without thinking too much about it. <laughs> yes, but if the worst came to the worst and you didn't get this money, what then? Well, then there'd be another market crash and then I would say to you what people like me always say, that it's not us that will suffer, it's your pension fund. <laughs> Thank you very much, George Parr. My pleasure. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I have to lay low for a while, so I'll be staying here inside. It's too dangerous out in the world. See you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride Without you here, I hold on to this phone so tight, and I whisper you a goodnight kiss. I'll see you on the other side when I crawl out of my cage. When the world is purified, I will find you, and I promise this: I'll see you on the other side. other side and I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side and I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side
It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>